Let me remind you that I'm organizing a trip to France in April 2024. It's a trip designed especially for people who are excited about Texas wine. There'll be 10 travelers, and we'll spend 10 days exploring southern France from Marseille to Bordeaux. We'll visit a good number of wineries and vineyards, enjoy the foods of each region, and see some important cultural sites, too. If that sounds like something you'd like to do, email me for more information or check out my blog post on France 2024 at thisistexaswine.com. And don't wait because the trip is already halfway sold out. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and consultant with a specialty in Texas wine. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 69. Jackie Mancuso joins me for this episode. She's vineyard manager for Atlas Vineyard Management in the Texas Hill Country, and she and her teams are responsible for a lot of the grapes that were harvested there this year. We talk viticulture, including the differences in Texas and California, where she's from. We talk about disease pressures, picking rootstock, irrigation philosophies, and more. But first, there's Texas Wine News. Texas Monthly has released the winners of this year's Vintners Cup. The 37th Annual Grape Fest has just concluded, and the People's Choice winners were announced. And there are a couple of new places opening around the state that you might want to check out. Whether you're a new listener or a longtime fan, Welcome to This is Texas Wine. For the third consecutive year, Texas Monthly Magazine, in conjunction with the Texas Department of Agriculture's Uncork Texas Wines program, is recognizing 12 top Texas wines. These 12 were selected by wine writer Jessica Dupuis and master sommeliers Jack Mason and Craig Collins. They call this the ultimate case of Texas wine. They tasted 236 wines by 70 wineries to create this list of the 12 winners, and 18 honorable mentions. The list includes the Boland Vineyards 2022 Marsan, English Newsom's 2021 Dry Riesling, Invention Vineyards 2022 Vintage Riesling, and William Chris 2022 Chenin Blanc from Del Valley. There were no rosé wines this year. The remaining eight are all red, and they are Augusta Vins 2022 Reserve Montepulciano, Becker Vineyards 2019 Barbera from Talent Vineyard, C.L. Buteau's 2021 Grenache from Farmhouse Vineyards, Chateau Wright's 2020 Malbec called Point of Rocks, McPherson Cellars 2021 Cunois, Messina Hoff's 2019 Paolo Sagrantino, Pedernales Cellars 2020 Texas High Plains Grenache, and finally Skies Over Texas 2021 Mouved. I'll share the full list, including honorable mentions, in the show notes. The 37th Annual Grape Fest has just concluded, and the votes have been tallied for the People's Choice Awards. Congratulations to Messina Hoff, Bull Lion Ranch, Silver Dollar Winery, Keepersall, and Juniper Cove Winery for winning top honors in the various categories at the Wine Tasting Classic. Two notable openings, Barron's Creek is opening a new tasting spot in the Bishop Arts District in Dallas. This will be the fifth location for Barron's Creek. An article on Culture Map Dallas reports, They make wines from Texas grapes, the unofficial litmus test for authenticity, but also use grapes from other districts in the U.S. and Spain. 
from vineyards owned by their winemaker, Russell Smith, formerly of Becker Vineyards. Next, Pontotoc Vineyards is opening a new spot in High called Pontotoc Vineyards Picnic Table. Co-owners Carl Money and his wife Frances have renovated the historic gas station on the property and have created a spot to come and taste an expanded picnic menu and wine flights around a large bar or under the oaks. There's room for everyone, including your dogs and kids. Of course, Pontotoc is already well-known not only for their 100% Texas wine, but also for the contents of their picnic baskets, which include tasty treats like pimento cheese and brownies and even sangria. Later on, this property will expand further with an on-site distillery. The official opening is October 6th, but if you happen to be driving by and see cars parked there, stop in and see if you can get in on a soft opening situation. Find links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. This is the time in the podcast when I ask you to do something for me, and there are a couple things that you can do today to help grow the podcast and that are free. One is to share the podcast with others. You can do that on social media by tagging at Texas Wine Pod in your stories and posts. You can also review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and leave a few remarks. And finally, you can visit my website to sign up for the occasional newsletter. That's where I'll tell you about my most recent wine finds and fun adventures in wine traveling. Thanks, y'all. Jackie Mancuso wasn't born in Texas, but she got here as fast as she could, and just in time to help wineries in the Texas Hill Country mostly, with everything from vineyard development to all kinds of vineyard management all the way through harvest. If you've wondered what it means to be a vineyard manager, Jackie is here to tell you, and from what I hear, this was a much-needed service in the Hill Country. Here's our conversation. Jackie, you've completed 18 harvests. 18 harvests this year. That's incredible. That's a long time. And three of those have been in Texas, but tell me what you were doing before you got to Texas and how you started your wine career. So growing up, I came from a family that lived in a city, not a large city, but a a hometown. And my dad was a businessman. My mom worked for the school district after we got to a certain age, middle school. So she raised us in elementary ages and then went back to work part-time. So definitely wasn't involved in agriculture, but we had a great family friend who had a cattle ranch just on the outskirts of town. And I would love to go out there mess around on the horses on the on the land and closer to my high school days he developed a golf course on his cattle ranch and that is my other passion is golfing so of course as I turned 16 and was able to drive I got a job working at the golf course so here I was on what I call my unofficial grandfather's land but also working at the golf course so Got to be around the cattle, got to be on the golf course, and really follow his footsteps. Um, So during high school, thinking about what I wanted to do, I decided it was a great idea for me to apply for the College of Agriculture. And so I got accepted to California State University, Chico, and entered the College of Agriculture in 2004. I studied plant science. During that time, I thought about transferring to Davis or Cal Poly. But I learned that I loved College of Ag at Chico. It's a very small knit community. And so what I did was I did internships during the summer. And so I took an internship 
the first year back in my hometown on a very small vineyard. And then the second summer, I took an internship on a 4,000-acre contiguous vineyard in the northern Sacramento Valley. And so it was a true test. I was able to go and live with my college roommate's family on their ranch and commute into the Sacramento Valley. And it was stressful. It was hard. Um, There was a lot of bugs, a lot of snakes, a lot of wildlife. And I had to really figure out if I was ready for it. And so it was a good test. Um, Ultimately, I loved it. And that boss was the boss that was my mentor for a very, very long time. I was able to take my two internships and get myself a job right out of college. So Rob Harris is my mentor and was my boss for a very long time. In um, 2012, I went to work for him until I moved out to Texas. And so he taught me everything I I know now, I mean, from tractor driving, truck driving, running crews, safety, all the aspects of farming grapevines development. He's taught me it at all, and I, I can, you know, really say that college is great, but hands-on learning is a lot more important. Atlas Vineyard Management is who you work for now, and that is a company that has branches throughout the U.S.? That's correct. So Atlas farms uh, 6,000 acres. They farm in Napa, Sonoma. So basically all of Northern California where there's grapevines, we have branches. And then Oregon and Washington. And I started our Texas division in 2022. So were you interested in coming to Texas or was Atlas interested in, I mean, how did this come about, I guess? Was Atlas looking into Texas anyway, and you thought that, well, that sounds interesting, or did you get them to come here? Nope, I got them to come here. I, uh, My husband and I, we've been together 20 years this year, and we had both ambitions to expand our careers. So after spending a lot of time in California, we decided it was time to move to a state that we might be able to expand our careers and do things, you know, more on our own. Um, So circling back a little bit, where we lived in California before we left was near Travis Air Force Base. And our neighbors were stationed at Travis, but they were from Marble Falls, Texas. And they told us, you guys got to go check out Fredericksburg, Texas. You will love it. And I was like, okay. Well, it happened to be COVID. And so... I was like, well, let me see. So I called down to the wineries and I said, I know it's COVID. I want to come visit you. Let me know if it's possible. I don't want to book a trip. No, no, come. We we want you. Um, we will make it happen, whether it's a business meeting or actual tasting. Okay, great. So this was at William Chris that I was speaking with. And uh, so they actually made a private lunch for Bill Blackman, my husband, and myself to sit down, talk, and get to know, like, the property, the vines. So I did that. And then they also made me two appointments at Abastris and Lostral. So we had a great visit. It was really a, a nice time. And we got to tour the hill country during that time. So anyway, circling back, we went home. We told our family we're moving to Texas and they didn't believe us, but we said, we're moving to Texas after the holidays. So holidays came and went, 
put Taos on the market. It sold in three days, and we were on the road by March 3rd. We pulled into Texas on March 10th, and we didn't have jobs. We didn't have a house. We didn't have anything, but we had our RV, and we had each other. So And some dogs. And some dogs and poodles. <laughs> and a cat. <laughs> okay, I didn't know about the cat. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, we moved in and got settled and started looking for work. And we thought we would be able to find work pretty easy, but we ended up not finding work that easy. But it was okay. I went to work for Southhold and got to experience more seller life than vineyard life. And it was really fun and exciting to see the other side of the business. I hadn't done that yet. But I also quickly understood my purpose, and my purpose was to be in the fields. And so during that time at Southhold, I was able to go and meet people, meet vineyard owners, and see what their needs were. And so I felt like I did some good research during that time. But then after I left Southhold, I did even more research. I met with vineyard owners and decided to, you know, kind of figure out what this area needed. And so at that time, I called up Atlas and said, hey, guys, it's kind of a silver platter for you. Um, we have this many acres that I know of. These people are interested in getting some vineyard management help. You know, what are your thoughts? And they said, let's go for it. Let's give it a try. So January of 2022, I started with seven acres of new development projects and maybe 10 acres of vineyard management. And now we are finishing out the season of 2023 and I have 475 acres under contract and I've developed six properties with a total of about 35 acres. That's incredible. So I wasn't familiar with Atlas before. So it's vineyard management. So planting new vineyards and then managing existing vineyards. And then what I see a lot of posts about, of course, is harvest. Mm -hmm. Yes. So during season, we have two options. We have full management, which is when I basically take over your property and do everything, all day-to-day aspects. Um, customers can be hands-on in any form, but if they don't want to be, I'm happy to run the property. Or we have what we call farm labor contractors. So when they need me to come in and prune or they need me to come in and move wires, they call me up and I come in for a day or two to get the job done. Other than that, they're responsible for their vineyard and telling me when they need me back. Um, The next option would be a development project. So you get a client who has land and they want to develop it. I come out there, I survey the land, take soil samples, do some recommendations on what kind of rootstocks they might want, some varietals that do well in this area that are desirable. And then we decide, you know, what kind of uh, spacing and what kind of acres we want to do. And we go from there. When you were in California thinking about Texas, I mean, what did you think you would experience viticulture-wise, and how has that been either true or not true? You said you were worried about the heat. I mean, I can't imagine going from lovely Sonoma to this brutal Texas heat, but there were probably even more surprises than that. Yeah. um, I would say I was more concerned about, like, the snakes and the scorpions and the wildlife that you guys have down here. But it's been completely opposite. I would say I had more interaction with snakes in California than I do here. I had a property on top of Sonoma Mountain, and we called it our snake ranch. And it was just loaded with rattlesnakes. I actually bought rattlesnake 
snake-proof boots or snake-proof boots for that ranch only. But coming down to Texas, I was very nervous about the heat. Um, I do like the heat. I would say I prefer heat over cold, but Texas is a lot more intense than California. California, you get cold mornings, so you get a little bit of coolness to get your work done before it gets real intense. And then when it's intense, it's usually for a couple hours at most, and then it cools back off. So 2021 was like the best year to come to Texas because it rained every other day. And I think the temperature maybe got to 92 every day. So I was kind of like, okay, I could do this. And then 2022 came in and it was like slap in the face, you know. Okay, here we go, 100 degrees every day. And that's when I started Atlas. So we had to really buckle down and figure out how we were going to acclimate to this and keep production up. In California, they have some pretty strict labor laws. So at 95 degrees, you basically can't work. And Texas, we don't have those labor laws. But of course, I'm trained in California labor laws. So I'm more serious about like monitoring men after a certain, you know, degree. And then our heat index is a big player here versus California. So we don't typically work eight hour days. We'll work six hour days. We'll do six days a week when we need to. I tell people this every weekend. If you start your day at 7 a.m. in the vineyard or 6 a.m. in the vineyard and you're out there as the temperature rises, you're acclimating with the temperature every hour. If you choose to go out to the vineyard at 10 a.m. and you're inside until 10 a.m., it feels very hot and it, it it's it's a little more intense. So I feel like the fact that we start our days so early and we stay out there, it's not as bad. So you put together a team of men primarily, I'm guessing, all men. You referred to men. Um, you put together this team. Did you bring some people from California, or have they found their way here to work for you, or have you trained people in the methods that you want them to to use in the vineyard? So Atlas has been generous in helping me get started in the first few months in 2022 with some uh, establishment. Those men stayed for pruning maybe six weeks. And then they went home. And that time I was able to secure H2A men from Mexico. And so in 2022, we had eight men that worked alongside me. And between those men and myself, we visited all the vineyard sites and did everything from pruning to harvest. In 2022, I had my permit in place for H2A and I brought up 24 men from Mexico. And during that time, I also hired Adrian Ballou. And so she has been my right hand and awesome teammate to get this job done. So between her and I, we manage the 24 men. We have them divvied up between three crews, which usually they're working on three different properties. But if it's a bigger property and we have the work, I'll put two on one property. Okay, 24 men. Wow. That's a lot. It is a lot. And I will say there's a lull between pruning and bud break and every year it's the same thing and everybody stresses out what are we going to do with these guys there's no work and it did get a little stressful but it was about 48 hours and people started calling me and saying okay can you come do this you know can we start development projects and so 24 was the right number this year I was worried that I bit off more than I could chew um 
but it was the right number. We stayed busy, I would say somewhere between 35 and 40 hours a week per man was guaranteed. And so those men now permanently live here? No. So with the HJ program, they have to go home for three months a year. So they're still here with me now, and they'll go home in the next uh, month. Okay. And then hopefully you'll get back some of the same guys. Now they're trained. So last year's eight men did not return. They were sent to California. Basically, when you gain experience in the field, the trade you're working in, you can increase your pay. You can increase where you want to work, your you know seniority, your status. So these men would rather go to California because the H-2A labor rate there is about 4 to $5 higher per hour. Oh, interesting. It's very different. And so with Texas, I had to take all new men that had never been a part of the program. So that meant I got a lot of training on me. And it worked out great. The men have been wonderful. I have, you know, been able to make relationships with all of them and see their strengths. And then each crew has strengths in whether it's development, young vine training, or adult vine training. And so I'm able to put the proper crew on the proper task. Mm -hmm. I saw that you started your harvest this year in East Texas, so I didn't know that you went that far out. Well, if they call and I got the time, sure, but I don't always have the time. But yes, so this is our second year going to East Texas. We went out there last year and we picked Blanc de Bois for William Chris, and they asked us to go back this year, and I, I took a month to respond to the email because <laughs> I was a little scarred from the previous year. The humidity is the next level out there, and we tried to tackle too much in one night the first year. We tried to do two ranches. So after deciding we would go, I said, okay, but we're going to do it over two nights, not one night. And so it was great. But then one of the customers applied chemical, and so we couldn't even tackle two ranches in two nights. We had to go two weeks in a row. Oh. But it was fine. We had a great time. One of the ranches has a second home, so they put the men in their second home, and they loved it. And I stayed in the winery slash office slash lab pullout couch, and it was great. I I honestly enjoyed it, and I look forward to it doing it again next year. One of the things that I noticed in going through your social media was that the crop loads were really different from last year to this year. Can you talk about why that would be and how you approach that? And I also, I just remembered what I wanted to ask you. It's about harvesting. Do you always do hand harvesting? Are you also running mechanical harvesters and how do you decide? Yeah. So let's start with the crop load. Last year, the crop load was very light. What happened was we didn't have any spring rains. We had a very dry winter. And so these vines, they ended up setting clusters. So we had two clusters per shoot, but the berries didn't pollinate. And so we had less berries per cluster and less weight per berry. So last year's harvest was lighter by a significant amount. This year, we had the spring rains that got our canopy up and established before we started that drought. And we were able to keep our soil profiles going after that with irrigation. So our crop load, we had the two clusters per shoot and we had the berry weight. So we saw a significant increase in our crop this year. 
Last year's crop we still think is a great crop. We think the flavors, the dynamics of the smaller crop and the lighter uh, clusters is going to produce a, a flavor profile that will be much different than other years. This year, I I really think the heat intensified things. We will see what the flavors do on it. But from what I saw during every night's pick, the grapes look great. They tasted great. What we battle here in Texas, which is different from California, is because we have such high heat, we have high pH. So that's a challenge that the winemakers get to play with. It's out of my hands for the most part. But yeah, harvest was great. We picked pretty much six nights a week for nine weeks straight. So last year during harvest, we picked with eight men approximately 80 tons. And this year during harvest for nine weeks, we picked 280 tons. So all of that was by hand. Usually it's seven men picking, one man driving the tractor, and myself or Adrian um, was on the back pulling leaves, monitoring the crews, making sure we weren't getting anything left behind. And so we were able to pretty much take care of every customer that called. It was a very successful harvest. We were very tired, but I think everybody ended on a high note. We probably had 100 bee stings and one snake bite. Oh, ouch. The snake bite luckily was non-venomous and no reaction, but it was a little scary. So you harvest at night, so it's a bit cooler. Do you start at midnight or something? We arrived to the ranch at 8. We start at 8.30 p.m. If the customer wants us to start later, we do. We have no problem starting at any hour of the night. It more depends on the crop load for that night, how much they need picked. But if they need eight tons picked and they don't want us to start to 2 a.m., I throw two crews at it so we can get, you know, the crop done in less time or half time. So depending on the varietal, depending on the canopy management, we can roughly pick a ton in an hour. Sometimes faster, sometimes slower. Canopy management is a huge part of that, though. You know, if we're not shoot thinning, if we're not pulling leaves, if the men have to look for the clusters, it slows them down a lot. Of course, if you have Tariga Nationale or some of these smaller clusters, it takes a lot longer to get that one ton. When you worked in California, how many varieties were you managing on that vineyard? So my first job out of college was at Winte Family Vineyards. And we probably had 35 varietals. Okay, so So that's more than I would have expected. Yeah, and it was crazy. Um, And so when I got to Texas and I saw how many varietals we have, I was like, oh, we're kind of back to the Winte days. Mm -hmm. But then I left Winte after about four years, and I went to Sonoma, and we focused on Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And so it wasn't necessarily about the varietals, but about the clones. So we would have multiple clones of Chardonnay and multiple clones of Pinot Noir, And you farm them like you would farm different varietals. Every clone needs something different. Every clone has a different pruning style. So we had a little bit of Zinfandel, a little bit of Cabernet, but for the most part it was Pinot Noir and and Chardonnay for my last 10 years in California. Are there some philosophies or techniques or technology that you brought to Texas, that Atlas brought to Texas, that were kind of novel to this area in the Hill Country? No. I think Texans are doing a great job. I think, uh, honestly, what we struggle with is having the hands to get the work done. 
But what we are doing is we're doing what needs to be done. We just need to do it in a timely manner, and we need to be able to get it done maybe a little more sophisticated. Something that I would like to bring to the Hill Country is field grafting. And so I am working on that currently. Tell me more about that. So field grafting would be when we plant the rootstock only in the ground the first year and the second year we come in and we put the scion in in the field. So we graft it. So you're able to determine your rootstock based on your soil samples. You plant that in the spring, just like you would plant a normal grapevine that is already grafted in the nursery, except for this one is just rootstock. You grow it just like you would a normal grapevine for the first year, a little less labor intensive, a little less, let's say we don't really need to worry about disease pressures as much. And then year two, you pick your scion, so your varietal, and then your clone. And we bring in the grafters and they come in and they graft that budwood onto your rootstock that has a year of root development already. So year two, we're able to get the trunks. We're able to bring that wood all the way up to the cordon wire. And then year three, we can lay down arms and select maybe, you know, one cluster per shoot on maybe four or five shoots. So half ton to the acre at most. So this is something I haven't seen done in Texas. I did touch on it a little bit at South Hold. Um, This year, I have brought it to the High Plains. I was able to graft over five acres at La Straw Vineyards. They had a five-acre block of Sagrantino, and we moved it to Tempranillo. So So if you already have an established root system, but you want to change, that's another time you can use field grafting. So you said from Sagrantino to Tempranillo? That's correct. So those vines were established. They were, I want to say, somewhere around the eight to ten years in age. And so what we do is we call top working it and we leave more of the trunk and then we graft on two buds on either side of that trunk and then those buds take off. So we were able to do that in May and they have cordon arms tied down. So when you have a a customer that calls you that wants to develop a new vineyard, you mentioned that you do soil samples and that Perhaps if you were going to use the field grafting method, maybe the rootstock is the next choice. What are some things that help you decide how to pick, how to pick a rootstock? Great question. So what we look at is the soils, if it's clay, if it's loam, you know, sandy loam, if it's real rocky, what our goal is for that vine in total. So do we want to create young, small vines with, let's say, less clusters per vine and a smaller vine? Do we have a very rocky section that we know this vine's going to struggle just from the soil condition, so we need a more robust rootstock that's going to have the power to, to dive deep? And then the second part of that would be nematodes. So we sample for nematodes. Nematodes feed on the roots, and they are microscopic. You can't just dig up and say, oh, I don't see any nematodes. No, you have to send the soil into the lab. And they look under the microscope for the nematodes. And then there's multiple types of nematodes. And depending on what type of nematode you have will help me determine what kind of rootstock we should plant. So what I'm finding here is we do have nematodes. And we are still using rootstock that is not a good choice for nematodes. 
So people are having declining vineyards, and they are not quite sure why. So we're sampling the soil to see, do you have nematodes? Okay, this is the rootstock we chose. Okay, so let's do some soil-injected applications, and that way we can kind of control the population. The other way to control the population is to plant a cover crop. And so if we have a nematode population in our vineyard, we plant a cover crop, and let's say a cover crop would be a brassica mix, and that would attract the nematodes towards the center of the vineyard rows, feeding on these cover crop roots and away from the vine roots. Interesting. Cover crops has come up a lot as I've talked to people about like trying to be more sustainable and um, for water retention purposes and just to care for the soil, I guess. Um, is that something that you are seeing more of or do you encourage that? I definitely encourage it. I think a ground cover in general is the right answer sustainably wise. Always want to have some sort of ground cover. But if we have a reason to disturb that native grass, we can seed in or drill in a cover crop that is beneficial for your vineyard. So if your vineyard's lacking some nitrogen, we can do legumes. If we have a really heavy clay and we're trying to change the soil profile, yes, it's going to take 10, 15 years. But if we consistently sow in a cover crop every year, a, a legume cover crop every year, we will see that change. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy about water management and how how and when you water the vineyard? Yes, uh, I, I do believe that we need to understand our soils first, our root system second, and then irrigation is in a whole, you know, evaporation, what time we're applying the water and looking at the vine before we decide how many hours and how often. So there's a lot of factors I like to use before I determine how many hours I'm going to apply. Shoot tips on a vine is very important. I think active shoot tips is a good sign that you're doing something correct. Um, Understanding your soil type is that clay. So is the water going to retain into a smaller section? Is it going to stay closer to the roots? Is it sand? Is it going to go straight down? You know, where do we put our emitters? How far away from the vine? How close to the vine? Those are all factors that I think about when I'm determining how often and how much irrigation. So, for example, we have a young vineyard. Well, the vine root system is probably less than 12 inches in the first year. Second year, we're getting a little deeper. So to put on six to eight hours would make no sense. We're wasting water, and water is a precious resource. So we want to do shorter sets more frequently to make sure those vines are able to take up the water we're giving them without wasting. So what's the right answer today is going to be different next year as the the roots develop. Correct. Okay. We talked about nematodes, but what about Pierce's disease? That is a huge problem here in the hill country. I am blown away at how bad it is. In California, we had a lot of help, support, grants, but we also only had two, maybe three vectors that were carrying this disease. So we had meetings, and in these meetings, if you had one vine in your backyard, you needed to be at that meeting, and you needed to be following the rules. And so 
it was very important that everybody participated in the program to eradicate the sharpshooters and eradicate these, you know, insects that were causing this really, really bad issue with, you know, vineyards throughout the nation. And so when I moved here to Texas and I saw the Pierce disease tenfold, I was, I was blown away and, you know, learning that we have, I think, 18 vectors here. That's a huge difference. That's a really hard thing to control when you have 18 vectors versus two or three vectors. So I feel like Pierce disease is likely here to stay, but I also feel like we need to do a better job as a community to make sure everybody understands not only what to do to protect your vines, but then what to do once you see Pierce disease. I think injecting chemicals into your irrigation system isn't common sense, isn't understood by everybody how important it is. And so getting that imidacloprid in on the right time, twice a season, you know, those things aren't, aren't easy and not everybody has an injection system. So they're spraying it on and that's not as effective. You know, that lasts 14 days Uh, through the drip system. It lasts 30 days, 45 days. What does it look like in the vineyard? So what I teach my men is when you see islands of green and islands of brown on the lignified canes this time of year, and it's, it's pretty prominent. As soon as you notice it, you'll be like, okay, I know what Pierce disease is. The other thing to look for is matchsticks. Matchsticks is what we call the petiole and the leaf blade is falling off. So you have your cane, you have your petiole, but no leaf blade. And so it looks like a matchstick. So you look for the matchsticks look for the islands of green. And then if you're lucky and you still have leaves, you can look for the bloodline veins going through the green leaves. But that's not always just Pierce disease. That could be other diseases. And will it kill a vine or just harm the productivity? Initially harm the productivity, but the bacteria that's inserted into the vine from the vector is slowly girdling the vine. So slowly stopping the sap flow. Well, it sounds like the California authorities who are working on Pierce disease maybe have made some progress, and I hope that it reaches Texas because if it's 10 times more of a problem here, then we need to throw some resources at it too. Yes, they are working on Pierce-resistant vines, uh, varietals. They're working on them in Davis. Yeah, those walker varieties. Yeah. Yeah. So they are... Pierce resistant in California? Are they Pierce resistant in Texas? Maybe. Have you farmed any of those? No, but I hear we have some here in the Hill Country. Yeah. So you decided on Hill Country, even though 75% or so of the grapes grown in Texas are in the High Plains. So tell me about that. I did decide on the Hill Country because that's where we visited. I was told from day one the High Plains is less than exciting. And so um, I've been up there a few times. I don't think it's uh, undesirable, but I, I love the hill country. and I've, In terms of a place to live? In terms of a place to live. Um, the vineyards up there are much more extensive, are much more uh, farther along in their developments and their, you know, management it is much more of a mechanical farmed atmosphere. 
So, yeah, I mean, I get calls all the time to go up there, and it's not out of question. It's just finding enough resources to work with. Right now, you know, Atlas is run pretty slim here in Texas. Adrian and I have done the bulk of it. I've recently hired a Texas Tech student, and so she's been brought on in the last month and doing awesome, and I see a lot of potential with her. Yeah, I'm definitely looking for little more help so I can get out and do more consulting and then hopefully expand. I was asked to go to the High Plains for harvest this year and I almost considered it but after nine weeks of picking in the hill country I said I think I'm good. (laughs) Yeah well it sounds like they've started harvesting some things but there's a lot still on the vine out there. Yeah I think uh, the heat has really uh, it's pushed a lot of stuff along quickly, and then it's stalled some stuff out. So what you hear in the textbooks is that after like 95 degrees, that vines no longer continue with their normal photosynthesis. So the sugar production or phenolics development, everything just kind of shuts down. Yep. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Yep. So to go back to irrigation, you know, if we're irrigating at two o'clock and it's a hundred degrees, there's a good chance that vine's not taking that water up, at least not to full capacity. So irrigating in hours of the day and night where the vine can transpire is very important. Hmm. I didn't even think about water uptake wouldn't work as well. I guess everything just doesn't work as well. Just like we, just like when I go outside when it's 105, I don't work as well either. I am headed to the Davis Mountains on Sunday. I love the Davis Mountains. Yeah. What, are you going to see vineyards? I am. Um, I have a new development project that I'll be looking at for the first time and getting things organized. And I have some clients that I'm going to visit and uh, see what they might be looking for or needing. It'll be my first visit out there. I'm pretty excited to see and experience what all the Davis Mountains have. That's very exciting. I have their weather on my weather app, and every time I look at it, I'm like, man, what am I doing here? (laughs) Yeah, that's the other thing I'm pretty excited about. Um, It's going to be in the low 80s by Tuesday, Wednesday next week here. Yeah, and possibility of rain I saw in the High Plains next week. so Which is not good. We're not ready for that. We're too close to harvest at this point. We don't want rain in the High Plains quite yet. Another month. Yeah. One of the questions I think I'd sent you is like, what are you doing differently here in Texas? And maybe it's nothing, but are you doing, um, is, do you think there's more vineyard development here maybe? Or I don't know. I don't have any idea what the answer could have been, but I just wondered if you have a different set of priorities here versus like what somebody may maybe working in California would have. So some things that vary or differ from here in Texas versus California, in my experience, is the development of vineyard management. I'm not sure if that's the right way to put it, but vineyard management is a new thing to a lot of Texans around here. And so when I say, well, I'm a vineyard management company, they say, well, what does that do? And I said, well, I come in and I can either help you with one task or I can help you with the entire farm, the entire vineyard. And uh, so it's been fun, exciting to teach these guys, you know, 
what a vineyard management company does, what we can offer to you. And really there's no limits. You know, if they say, I need your guys to help me build a fence today, not a problem. We'll be there. I need your guys to move wires today. Not a problem. I need your guys to trench new irrigation lines. Not a problem. So it's been really good to get on these farms, get to know all of the different personalities and show them what Atlas can offer. We're very flexible. Um, In California, I feel like most of the vineyards are very established and they want full management. So it's more rare to be a farm labor contractor. It's more common to be full management. So when I knew of Atlas while I was working in California, we hired Atlas as a full management vineyard operation. They came in and they did everything. My boss and I at the time, we oversaw their day-to-day operations and made sure that they were doing what we wanted them to do. And then Atlas can be their pest control advisor, scouting the vineyards. But during my time in Sonoma, I was our pest control advisor. So I scouted our vineyards weekly and I reported to Atlas what I was seeing and then they would spray appropriate chemicals. So things like that are still kind of being developed here in Texas. I wouldn't say we have pest control advisors. We kind of all just work together. We put our heads together and we brainstorm and we know what what diseases are coming about, depending on what month, what season we're in, and what insects to be looking for. But I think what Texas can benefit from is more chemical advisors and more chemical companies coming down here and seeing what we struggle with and uh, educating us on their products so we can be sustainable and using different chemistries at the appropriate time and not constantly using the same chemical program every year. Maybe you can convince someone to come down here in that role. I'm working on it. Okay, good. I'm working on it. I think there's a lot of opportunity. I've spoken to chemical companies and uh, Texas is very wild west still. So, And a chemical advisor doesn't necessarily mean more chemicals. It may just mean the better use of chemicals. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, I like to remind people that sustainable farming is not organic farming. It's using the proper products at the right time and sustainable. So in California, we were very good about always using the softest chemicals possible. We never used chemicals that had danger as their caution word. We like to use chemicals that had caution, maybe warning, depending on the situation. Um, So these chemicals are often safer than your household bleach. Very cool. Any other um, like service provider type of roles that you would like to see come to Texas? Let's see. I would like to see our winemakers be more active with me, um, with the vineyard owners and throughout the season. So from pruning all the way through harvest, getting in the field monthly to make sure that We understand what we're trying to accomplish to get these wines to table and be a partner, not just a consumer. Mm -hmm. Not just show up at harvest day. Yeah. So I think that's a a place where we can improve. I'm not saying that we're not already doing that. I'm just saying I would like to see 
more winemakers reach out to me and say, Jackie, let's look at the pruning together before we get started. Maybe it's a good time to reset the cordon arms. Maybe let's try, um, you know, these 10 lines and do cane pruning and see what we can do with that this year. Uh, I've done a lot of cane pruning. That's basically all we did in California for Sonoma. So I think it would be a great thing for us to bring here to Texas with all of our wood diseases that we do have. And so I would like to see these winemakers come out and be interested in the grapevines from January to August. I'm sure you feel like a significant portion of your job is done when those grapes are harvested and off to the client. But do you also enjoy tasting the wine? Are you are you a wine person? Oh, yes. I love my wine. Uh, that is an understatement. I do love red wine more than I love white wine, but I drink both. Um, I think that two things. Yes, it's a relief when the fruit is off the vine, but what we differ here in Texas versus California, our harvest may end July and August. Well, that's still five, six months sometimes before, you know, our first freeze. And so it's very important that we take care of our canopies and don't let them defoliate too soon. So if we're restricting water up to the harvest, it's important that we give it all the water at once post-harvest to keep those canopies healthy and happy. Um, If we defoliate too soon, then the vines are going to struggle to retain those carbohydrates and amino acids for the next season's bud break. So it's very important that canopy management continues post-harvest. But yes, it's, it's been great. I have a few winemakers that have invited me in to taste the wines as they're going through fermentation and post-fermentation. I've really enjoyed that. Well, I'm glad that you've come to Texas and I know a lot of wineries and other vineyard managers are thrilled that you're here to, to help and provide expertise. I'm glad that you were willing to come on and tell us about what you do. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, I've had a really great time getting to know the different winery and vineyard owners. Um, Texas has been very warm and welcoming and I to continue to build Atlas up here. Good deal. Thanks, Jackie. Stay tuned for demerits and gold stars or something like that. I'm gearing up for the fall podcast season scheduling interviews and editing recordings. I'm also seeking some new sponsors for this space. So if your target market is Texas wine professionals or enthusiastic wine consumers or just plain old Texans, we should talk. Reach out to find out how to put podcast advertising to work for you. And if you found value from this podcast, I invite you to consider supporting the podcast with a donation. You can do that on the website at thisistexaswine.com and then click support the podcast. And now it's time for demerits and gold stars. There seems to be some good that comes with some bad, and it's not always clear what's a demerit and what's a gold star. Take this for instance. Texas wine and wine tourism is getting some great national press lately. Super. But the headlines of several of those articles include the dubious statement that Texas wine country is the number two wine destination in the United States. But guess what? As far as I've been able to uncover, 
That statement was true in 2010, according to Orbitz, but there's no indication that that's true today. Maybe Texas is number one. Who can really say? Another great bit of news in Texas is that Birdie's Restaurant in Austin was just named Food and Wine Magazine's 2023 Restaurant of the Year. It looks and sounds great. Birdie's features a 250-bottle wine list overseen by one of the co-owners. And the article in Food and Wine states that the list manages to be both deeply interesting and approachable, brimming with highly drinkable bottles. The co-owner bounces from table to table, dropping stories and charm and convincing diners to try bottles that they may have never considered. I know what you're thinking. You're wondering how many Texas wines are on their 250 bottle wine list. I can answer that, assuming that the online wine list is still accurate. There would be two, two Texas wines out of 250 at Food and Wine Magazine's 2023 Restaurant of the Year. So is that a gold star or a demerit? I'll leave that up to you to decide. Well, that's it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks with an interview with Paul and Meryl Bonarigo, the co-founders of Messinahoff Winery. Until then, you can get in touch, send your feedback, questions, or ideas for future episodes to texaswinepod at gmail.com. Thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Check out txwinelover.com and download the app to help you plan your next trip to a Texas winery. Thanks for listening. Cheers, y'all. Cheers.